12. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 through 12. This is the word of the Lord. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. As I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest you, there be any of you Excuse me. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord stands forever. Temptation. Temptation is something that we all deal with on a daily basis. We are tempted to anger. We are tempted to lust we are tempted to jealousy we are tempted to pride and the question is in any given situation how do we respond to temptation will you give in to the flesh or will you be obedient in what god would have you to do temptation also comes i believe in different sizes <clears throat> sometimes temptation is um Here's a sin. Are you going to go after it? Sometimes the temptation is abandon God. Deny him. It's bigger. And the question is, what will you do? Will you trust in God or will you cry out in rebellion against him? I've said this before and I'll say it again. One of the hallmarks of the book of Hebrews uh, is it's defending and showing the importance of the Old Testament. It has a high view of scripture. And over and over again, the writer appeals to the Old Testament, expecting those who read it to take it as authoritative and binding. And he places great emphasis on the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, in verse 7, he begins by saying, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says... Notice he doesn't say here, as scripture says. He says, as the Holy Spirit says. He's placing emphasis on the uh, working of the Holy Spirit in the production of the word of God. The Bible was the product of the Holy Spirit. He has taken the things of God. He has given them to us through human writers. And the events that the writer's talking about in this passage take place in the Exodus. We're getting stories, we're getting glimpses of the Exodus. Many years later, the psalmist would recount these words in Psalm 95, 7, for he is our God, it says, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. In essence here, there's... uh, We can say it this way. What was true for Israel in the Exodus is true for David in the Psalms and is true for us today in Hebrews. 
The word of God is unchanging. It is constant. So we're going to see, and I wait for gas, two points today. <gasps> Not three. Yes, two points today. I don't know. I lost the third one somewhere along the way. I'm sure we'll find it again sometime. Uh, but we're going to see two things. First, we're going to look at the tempting of Israel. I want us to, for a little moment, take a look at the context of what the writer's pulling from. So we know the story, so it's fresh in our hearts and our minds. And then we're going to see the testing of the church, our own testing. And how do these two things compare? So let's begin by looking at the testing of Israel. And this passage is actually pulling from several revolts in the history of the Exodus. We are reminded, as we go into this from last week, that we're God's house. It's true for Israel, it's true for us. And we cannot, as God's house, live in rebellion. And this is exactly what Israel was doing at times during the Exodus. And we know, so just as a cursory introduction, we know what the Exodus is, right? So the people, uh, I think the ladies yesterday studied Joseph, right? So through, through Joseph, through Joseph's going into Egypt, uh, Joseph's brothers were bought, brought into Egypt. And over many, many years, uh, the peop- those people from the line of Joseph multiplied. And they became this great nation inside of Egypt called Israel. But at some point along the way, the pharaohs had forgotten Joseph. And basically, the Israelites became a workforce. They were workforce. And God, in remembering his promise to Abraham, begins to draw Israel out of Egypt to the promised land. We see this through the story of Moses. And you know the story of Moses. And then Moses comes to Pharaoh, let my people go, right? Charlton Heston, let my people go, right? And they come out of the Exodus, or come out of Egypt, and they go into the desert, And after they've been delivered, almost immediately after they've been delivered, what does Israel start doing? Complaining. They start grumbling. We go to Exodus 16. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So they're sitting there going, oh, it would be better if we were back in Egypt where our bellies were full, and who cares if we were being beaten and oppressed? It would be better. Instead of trusting the Lord to supply their needs, they complained against him. They were being tested in the wilderness, and they failed miserably. Over and over again, Exodus 17, uh, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirst there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Moses ends up calling that place where this happened, Massa and Meribah which means testing and rebellion. And those two exact words appear here in Hebrews 3.8. Do not harden your heart as in the day of rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness. Testing and rebellion. The people were constantly testing God and rebelling against God. The other Old Testament passage in mind here is Numbers 14. 
And this is as they're about to go in the promised land, right? So they haven't gone for the desert for 40 years yet. They've crossed the desert. They're going over. They send out the 12 spies. And the 12 spies come back and and say what? Well, 10 of the 12, right? They come back and say, this is too much. We, there's no way we can go in here and take this land. There's simply no way. Numbers 13, we came to the land which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified with very, and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of Negeb. The Hittites, the Jezebites, the Amorites dwell in the hill country. These are probably all num- names of people you've heard them later battle, right? Um, and the, uh, excuse me, dwell in the country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, we are not able to go up against the people for they are stronger than we are. Again, only two spies, Jacob and Caleb, only two of them said, let's go. In fact, they say this, the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. But they feared. They refused to obey. They even got to the point where they were tempted. They were about to stone Joshua and Caleb in their anger, in their rebellion, In their testing of God. And this is when a glory cloud of the Lord appears at the tabernacle. And God is mad, to say the least. And if you've been a parent, it's when you've said, go clean your room. 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 Right? And eventually you're like, go clean your room. It's like there's an anger here, right? Except not like my anger. That's not right. God is rightly anger here. And Moses, Lord comes to Moses and says this, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And at this point, God's ready to wipe out Israel, right? They haven't listened. They haven't obeyed. And Moses comes and says, please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now and the response was yes he spared them but he also punished them none of you save Caleb and Jacob or Joshua and his family will enter into my rest to the promised land and they spent the next 40 years dying off in the desert you understand that's what the 40 years wilderness wandering were right Miss Francis, I see enough people waving things here. Can we maybe waving their fans? Uh, Might need to look at the air conditioner. When Stu's over there waving, I know something's wrong. (laughs) Um, The 40 years wandering in the desert was for the purpose of dying, killing off a generation. Because they would not enter the rest of God. In my wrath, I swore they shall not enter my rest because they rebelled and tested God. I think it can be hard for us sometimes. It can be hard for us to relate to the Old Testament and even to Israel. We're so far removed from these things. 
And we can be tempted to say, what does Israel have to do with me? I didn't rebel against God in the same way Israel did, right? And we might even take that a step further and say, man, if I had seen manna from heaven, if I had seen water from a rock, if I had seen a, a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, if I had seen the parting of the Red Sea, and not only that, this is the group that was in, the, in Egypt during the plagues, right? They saw all these many signs. They saw all these many wonders. Say, if I saw all that, I wouldn't rebel. What's wrong with them? We're being a little naive there when we do that, I think, right? Because the sad reality is this. We do see God working, oftentimes in mighty ways. In fact, if you've been here on Wednesday nights for the last many, many weeks, each Wednesday we've been hearing how God has worked mightily in each other's lives, right? We've heard the story of God's faithfulness, how he has loved us and drawn us. And we still, at times, rebel and test. Because in the same breath I say we can see God at work, I know that in my own heart, and I'm sure in yours as well, we also see how we sin. We sin. We continue to struggle in sin, and what is sin but rebelling against God? In our stubbornness, we dig our heels in, we make excuses, we get angry with one another or with others outside of the church, we fail to extend grace. For some, they may respond this way if things are really bad, they may pray to God, but when things are going really good, they credit themselves. We have to be reminded of who we are. We are those in exile, just like Israel, we're in exile. This is not the promised land. Thank God, right? This is not the promised land. We are not yet in the land of promised. We have been delivered like Israel. We have been delivered from the oppressor for Egypt. The oppressor, or excuse me, for Israel, the oppressor was Egypt, right? For you, the oppressor is sin and death and the devil. We have been delivered from these things, but we are still in exile. We are still in our wilderness wandering. And we are enduring a time of testing. And this is our second point, the testing of the church. What is the relationship between those events and us today? Like Israel of old, we are headed somewhere. A.W. Pink says this, a theologian by the name of A.W. Pink. Testing reveals the state of our hearts. A crisis neither makes nor mars a man... But it does manifest him. Let me stop there for a second. Now, there's more to this quote, but he says here, crisis does not make nor mar a man, but it does manifest him. What does that mean? 
It means this, that in our time of testing, what is truly in our heart comes out. Testing doesn't make us worse. It doesn't make us better. It shows us for who we are. He goes on to say this, while all, while all is smooth sailing, we appear to be getting along nicely. But are we? Are our minds stayed upon the Lord? Or are we instead complacently resting in his temporal mercies? When the storm breaks, it is not so much that we fail under it as that our habitual lack of leaning upon God, of daily walking in dependency upon him, is made evident. We must be daily depending upon God. And there's a sense here, I believe, that what Pink says is that we should not be surprised that as we depend upon God, or as we fail to depend on God, and then the storm breaks over us, that it knocks us to our feet, off our feet. We have to be daily depending and leaning upon God. Every single day. And you see the difference between the ten spies and Joshua and Caleb. For Joshua and Caleb, their faith was proved by their response. Jonathan Edwards says trials have a tendency to distinguish between true religion and false and to cause the difference between them evidently to appear. This is not 100%, by the way. It is not always, sometimes trials are so much that they knock us down. But we, at the same time, we have to be questioning ourselves, where are we leaning on? What are we trusting on? You have a God who has delivered you. And so we think about Israel in the wilderness and we go, Israel's hunger was real, right? They go into the desert, they're walking around and they're hungry. And it was a real hunger. Ever been really hungry? Needing food, really thirsty? But instead of saying, we have a God who delivered us in a miraculous way, instead of crying out, God, we're hungry and we know you can provide, provide for us. They grumbled. The trial revealed their heart. And the question for us becomes, do we grumble against God? Do we doubt his wisdom? Do we doubt his goodness? Do we doubt his power to lead and protect us? Because he has that power. He has that ability to lead, to protect us, to guide and sustain us. What am I not saying? That does not mean that hunger will not come. Hunger will come. What do I mean by hunger? Trials will come, right? Hunger will come. Thirst will come. Persecution will come. In whatever form it comes, the temptations will come. But what will be our response when it does come? Will we grumble? Or will we turn and trust in his wisdom and goodness? Paul in Philippians gives us some direction. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. 
Philippians 2.14. Later in Philippians 4, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. For Israel, after all they had received from his hand, they still did not know him. For us, salvation is not simply a matter of knowing God's blessing. It's not just about seeing the blessing of God. It's about knowing God himself. It's not just about what God can give to us. It's about who he is. To understand his character. To understand his ways. This is something Moses got as we went through our story. Because Moses, when God comes and says, I'm going to wipe out this stiff-necked people. You know what his response is? That's not your character. You have promised covenant loyalty to these people. And you have promised upon yourself. He appeals to the promises of God. When God is filling our thoughts, when God is consuming our every Moment, we learn to rejoice even in trials. We cannot simply take the gifts without submitting to the one who gives those gifts. This is what he says in Hebrews 3 10 and 11. For 40 years, or excuse me, therefore I provoked. With that generation, I was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their hearts and they have not known my ways. They did not know him, they did not know who he was. And so he swore in their wrath, They will not enter my rest. Israel complained throughout their time in the desert. Over and over again, they're complaining. Even, even when they come into the promised land, they're still complaining. They're not obeying. Even as manna fell from heaven and they collected, even as their clothes and shoes did not wear out. Do you know that? As they wandered through the wilderness, their shoes and clothes, their shoes and clothes did not wear out. You ever keep the same pair of shoes for 40 years? Well, there you go. Dave has. Have you worn them every day as you walk around the desert for 40 years? Yeah. What happens if you were to take the same pair of shoes and just start walking for 40 years? They're going to wear out. Their shoes didn't wear out. Can you imagine that? And they witnessed this. This is why the writer in verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be any of you, in any of you, evil unbelieving hearts leading you to fall away from the living God. There's this real warning here. It says, don't simply come for the blessings. Come for the one who gives those blessings. Jesus. Jesus must be our example. The Israelites, they were punished for forgetting God. But here's the thing. 
we now have Jesus set before us. The far greater mediator in God's own son. Jesus who himself was sent to the wilderness. One of the things I think we can often miss, and maybe you've heard this before, but if you look at Jesus' 40 days of temptation in the desert, in the wilderness, it mirrors the 40 years of Israel in the desert, very intentionally. As you look at the temptations of Jesus in Matthew 4, you see a very comparable temptation. Hey, aren't you hungry? You haven't had food for a while. This is Satan to Jesus. You should turn those stones to bread. What does Jesus say? I may be hungry. And he was hungry. He was hungry. It was a real hunger, much like Israel's hunger was real. But he says man should not live on bread alone, but by every word that comes. I can't remember exactly, but you get the point. It proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he comes and says, takes him up to the temple, right? And he, or to a high, high mountain at this point. And says, hey, you should jump off. The angels will come. Test God. Test him. See what he'll give you, do for you. He says, no, I will not test the Lord my God. Then he takes him to the top of the temple and he says, all this could be yours. Rebel. Rebel. Testing. Rebellion. These two words, right? Rebel against God. He says, no, I will not. Jesus went through what Israel went through, but perfectly. Jesus must be our example. When we fail, he is victorious. When we are faithless, he is obedient. And now we can say with Paul in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We who are Jesus' own children, or brothers and sisters, as the writer of Hebrews says, We now live, yes, still in the flesh, but we live by faith in him who loved us and gave himself for us. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In essence, what Paul is saying is, you have an identity reversal. It's no longer you, it's Jesus. Rest and trust in him. Follow him. Find that goodness and mercy. As you follow him, then as the Psalm 23 progresses, you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And really what we're talking about here is a subtle thing in some ways. Because it's the difference between Knowing something and being something. I don't know if that makes sense. It can't, we can't just know who God is. We can't just know what it means to be a child of God. We must be children of God. It's not just about coming for the good things. It's about being there even through the trials and the temptations. It's about holding fast knowing that we can only do so through the working of the Spirit in us. 
Jesus always, in his response to temptation, and they were real temptations, I, I say again, he always answered with the word of God. Do you know why this is the case? Because it was who he was. It was his identity. He was rooted firmly in his father. So we who sit here in this room, I get to say to you, do you claim Christ? Is Christ your own? Do you believe that the spirit of the living God is now dwelling in you? And if you answer yes, then you are not who you were. You are not who you were. You are something different, something new. Therefore, the whole of you, all the things you say, all the things you do, your actions, your reactions are dictated by this new identity. And there are going to be times where you're tempted to despair. You might lose a job. You might lose a loved one. You might yourself become sick even deathly sick. And the temptation in those moments is to say what? Why? This is not fair. Why should I lose my job? Why should I lose my loved one? Why should I myself be sick? When the reality is we should be saying, we go to the word of God and we say, the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. There are times where we're tempted to despair. There are times where we're tempted to sin. When someone makes us angry, when someone takes or has something we desire, when any type of sin claws its way into our hearts, and we must look in the face of these sins, of these temptations. And we are to turn from them. And we do this by knowing God's word. By saying, you cannot abide here because Christ abides here. And be reminded of this. You're in the wilderness. You're in the wilderness now. You are getting ready for the promised land. And that's awesome. Let me tell you, that is awesome. The promised land is awesome. It's, it's something more. It's that place, that rest, that being in the presence of God that he is preparing for us. But that is not now. The Bible calls us sojourners, aliens. This is not our home. Don't dig your deep roots, your roots deep in this world. Because much as Israel is, we're moving from one place to the next. Just wait until that time where we get to cross the River Jordan. And we get to go to the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm using Old Testament metaphors here, right? We're not literally going back to Palestine. We're going to something greater. That's the Old Testament as it was getting us ready. You're wondering for now in the wilderness. 
fix your eyes. Fix your eyes on Jesus. In the land he is preparing. I, I sometimes don't wonder if... No, I, I might say this a little bit more severely. Um, the American church is in an identity crisis. We're in a, an identity crisis. We can't figure out who and what we want to be. Are we, like many others around us, merely a social organization to push an agenda, or are we something more? And if we're merely a social organization, then what we believe can change to fit our desired goal. We can morph and change what we are to get to our end. That is a wrong identity. That's not who we are. Our identity ought to be, should be, is in Christ Jesus. We cannot come in grumbling and complaint when things do not go as we would have them go. We must hold fast in the deliverance that he has provided for us. Because the, the equation here as we look at it, or the, the, the parallels that we're drawing, is that while Israel was delivered from Egypt, we are delivered from sin. We are delivered from this world, from death. So we have to hold fast in that deliverance that he has provided for us. Hold fast to our, our new identity. Hold fast to our Savior and King. Jesus is our King. He is our Savior. He has made us new. He has come in us and he has restored us. And not restored us is a bad word because he's made us completely something different than we were. He's restored us to relationship. But much like Nicodemus, as he comes, he says, you must be born again. You must be made new. You must be different than you were. And if you are different, if you are born again, stop living as if you're old still. As if you're the old man, the old woman. Be what is new. Hold fast to your Savior and King. Know that Jesus is better. Be ready. Are you ready? Better than what? Everything. everything. He's better than everything. We are to be in relationship with him. And I believe as we look back even to last week, we're to be in relationship with one another. As we individually are his and we are corporately his, our identity must be driven by that. Not our sins, not our temptations, not our trials. And that's hard, right? I've just laid that out there for you. This is your, be who you're supposed to be, not who you used to be. And you go, okay. But that's hard, right? Because that sin is constantly trying to drag us back. It's trying to pull us back. 
What's going to keep you? What's going to keep you from letting it? Be in relationship with him. Surrender yourself to the word of God. Not just in, yes, I believe what the Bible says. It's easy for us to say, I believe the Bible and never pick it up. Know what you believe. Know in whom you rest and trust. I feel like there's a hymn in there somewhere. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that, which he is something, something, until that day. I can't remember the last part. No. Know the promises of God. Stand and rest on the promises of God. There's another hymn for you. Stand on his promises. Rest secure in him. Know that he is better than everything. Do not allow temptation and trial to sift and move you, to take your eyes off of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we see Israel, and it is easy for us to say we are not like them, Lord, but far too often we are. Help us by the working of your spirit to know who we are. Shake us from any identity crisis that we might be having. And would we focus wholly on Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord, if our hearts have grown hard, melt them. If our minds have grown lazy, sharpen them. Awake them. Lord, we ask that you would come and do whatever is necessary to draw our eyes back on you. And that is a scary prayer, but do it. Focus our eyes on you that we might see who you are and live not for this world, but for the world that is to come. We ask and pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.